0: You know, I know it's a little early, but I have to tell you I'm, I'm very excited uh, for the conference. I'm very excited about this morning. I'm looking forward to moderating this particular panel, which is on research in action. You know, one of the things that uh, Moen's uh CEO of uh, Valmont and I talk about a lot, is how do we make sure that, that the Doherty Institute really focuses in on that opportunity to take the benefits of research and make things happen. Take, take action. And so, you know, someone who grew up on a farm uh, here in Nebraska, and by the way, we're still farming. Uh, I just stayed out at our farm uh, this last night. Um, you know, I can think of no more important and timely theme than building resilient agroecosystems. I uh, think Roberto laid it out very well in terms of some of the challenges we've seen in just the past few years. Uh, I'd like to say a little bit about the relationship of ag development and the Gates Foundation. In fact, agricultural development is now one of the largest areas of investment for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It wasn't our first big focus. Our first big focus, as many of you probably know, happened to do with global health. But we found that the people that we were trying to serve in our work on on global health were also uh, often poor farming families. You're gonna hear this term a lot, smallholder, smallholder farm families. And what does that really mean? As to somebody who spends a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia, it typically means a family, sometimes of six, eight family members, uh, striving to, to make a living on typically, you know, three to five hectares, maybe you know, five to ten acres. So those those when you hear that term, smallholder. Uh, family farm, that's what I'd like you to have in, in your mind. And it turns out that's a lot of the food production uh, that's necessary uh, in, the, in the world. And these poor farming families are struggling uh, to produce enough food while also struggling to make sure that they, they don't succumb to deadly diseases. And so the Gates Foundation work goes hand in hand and we decided that the foundation really needed to invest in agriculture if we wanted to make a, a big difference. So, since 2006, when we really got going on our agricultural work, we've now committed more than $2.5 billion to agricultural development, and primarily in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. It's one of our top priorities because we absolutely believe that helping farming families increase production in a sustainable way and sell more crops is the most effective way to reduce hunger and poverty over the long term. And in the context of this conference, helping smallholder farmers improve water management is an important piece of the puzzle. The increasing demand for water against a backdrop of limited supply is a big challenge for the entire world. Uh, And the impact of these shortages are gonna be felt most acutely by the world's poorest farming families. Already it's a significant constraint today on the agricultural Uh, productivity of millions of smallholder farmers, and then if you think about how the world population is gonna continue to grow from seven billion to eight billion and then nine billion, the increase in demand for food uh, and agricultural production in the range of 50 to 100% increased demand, and then climate change, uh, feeding uncertainty, smallholder farmers are likely to face a very difficult future, an even more difficult future. The foundation uh, has invested in agriculture, water management research, tools, technologies. We've invested in participatory research. You're gonna hear that a lot uh, in this next panel. We believe it's very important that you have to include the voices of these farmers, their families, in, in the work that we do. And so figuring out how to have that kind of participatory research is very important. That's what helps to advance the current understanding of ag water management landscape and then identify solutions that farmers can can use where there's constraints in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So we're continuing to leverage the learning from our investments. We're trying to use our voice to advance agricultural water management solutions for smallholder farmers. And so, as I said at the beginning, with all this in mind, I'm very excited to moderate this morning's panel. We have with us, Well, I'll do it in in order uh, from from, uh, uh, starting with Paul. Paul Hicks is a water resource specialist with Catholic Relief Services working in Latin America and the Caribbean and coordinator for their global water initiative. Uh, Next to Paul, we have Aditi Merkaji, who works on water and climate change at the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development uh, in Nepal. And then we have Karen Vilholf, a senior researcher focusing on ground water management at the International Water Management Institute in South Africa. And uh, next to, to Karen is Ravinder, Ravinder Kaur, project director for the Water Technology Center at the India Agricultural Research Institute in New Delhi. So please join me in welcoming our panelists. <laughs> So what I'd like to do is to have each of you just spend a minute or two uh, introducing yourself and the work that you do, uh, and uh, probably related it to the theme of research and action. Paul, we'll start
1: with you. Great. Thank you for the introduction, and, and um, thank you to Roberto and your team for the invitation to present here. It's uh, quite an honor to sit with um, my, the, the other panelists here um, and, and to be uh, meeting with uh, Mr. Riggs. I work for Catholic Relief Services. I'm based in San Salvador, El Salvador. And for the past five years, I've been managing the Global Water Initiative, which is a 10-year initiative funded by the Howard G. Buffett Foundation um, that's working in Central America, East Africa, and West Africa. And we are a coalition of organizations, CRS, CARE International, IUCN, IIED. And then in Central America, we're also working very closely with CIAT and CATIE. The problem that we're looking at in in Central America is the issue of rain-fed agriculture, which accounts for uh, about 65% of the food that's grown in the region and 70% of the land. The issue is very low productivity. If I I get the conversion right, our average farmers that we work with are producing, their maize yields are 1.5 metric tons per hectare, which if I get the conversion right, is around 30 to 40 uh, bushels per acre. So very, very low. Low compared to even the most conservative estimates of what would be the potential in the, in the context that they work in.
2: And so the big question
1: is why? Why is that the problem? And so what we're working with is a group of researchers, policymakers, and development professionals to really understand what are the constraints. Um, not just what are the, con- the technical constraints or the agronomic, which are, are uh, definitely part of the problem, but also looking at the issues of policy, Looking at financing, and um, and primarily uh, government or agricultural services such as extension.
0: Great, thanks, Paul.
1: Uh, Aditi, please. Yes,
3: Um, I'm. uh, Thank you for inviting me here. Uh, Just briefly to introduce myself, uh, I'm Dr. Aditi Mukherjee. I work with a center called International Center for Integrated Mountain Development. We are an inter governmental regional body whose mandate is to work in the 8 Hindu Kush Himalayan countries. And, uh, and I lead a theme on water and air there, and some of the big questions that we are trying to understand and answer are things like what's happening to the Himalayan glaciers. If, if uh, temperatures rise up by so and so, what would be the net impact on... Uh, river flows in the downstream, and Kush Himalayas is really important because that's the tower house of water and is the source of all the ten major river basins. Um, uh, so uh, so, that, so I, I'm fairly new at mode. Before this I used to work at International Water Management Institute, which is a CGIR body, and we looked at, uh, at, at water and, and water institutions and policies, that's my specialization. Um, So, uh, as I was mentioning to some colleagues earlier, I, I am a human geographer by training and what really interests me is to understand what farmers are doing and why they are doing what they are doing. And doing this research almost invariably brings me to issues of policies and institutions. Farmers are growing certain crops because the market prices are such and such, farmers are doing so because electricity policies are such and such. So, uh, so uh, much of my work has been uh, is about understanding farmers' behavior, finding links with the broader policy uh, policies that frame their behavior, and then to uh, then to inform policy in such a way that farmers benefit. So that has been briefly what I have been doing. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you, Aditi. Karen, please.
4: Yes. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity, Jeff and Roberto. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm Karen Wilholt. I'm a senior researcher at the International Water Management Institute in Pretoria, South Africa. Um, I'm a a groundwater specialist, and um, I work with groundwater from various perspectives. Uh, I have a technical background, but I like to see myself as working uh, very interdisciplinarily on issues related to groundwater, and in this context, particularly related to to the use of groundwater for irrigation in sub-Saharan Africa. So we have uh, worked on this issue for some time, and I will talk, come back to that in the panel discussion later on. Um, so it's both uh, a question of understanding uh, the resource, what, what is there, how much is available, how is it impacted by climate change, and then also the human and socio-economic aspects uh, related to this. Uh, so how do the farmers get access to the groundwater? What are the impediments for, uh, for having sustainable use of this and uh, sort of cost-effective uh, use of groundwater? Uh, we have done various uh, mapping exercises uh, related to groundwater, for instance, uh, groundwater drought risk mapping in Sub-Saharan Africa. We're now looking at uh, groundwater irrigation potential mapping in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And we're also looking at uh, interactions between groundwater and surface water. So those are sort of some of the technical issues that we're addressing also.
5: Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you, Karen. Rivender.
5: Thank you, Jeff. Thanks a lot. A very good morning to all of you. Well, at the outset, uh, on my behalf and on behalf of the Indian Agricultural Research Institute, I would first of all like to extend my gratitude to all the organizers for having me here. Uh, Thank you very much for very meticulously planning for each and every session of this conference. I wish you all the best. Uh, Well, regarding me, I am basically a soil physicist and a soil and water conservationist by profession. And I'm currently affiliated with the Water Technology Center of the Indian Agricultural Research Institute. And as the name suggests, um, our center is mandated to do uh, basic and applied research on all aspects of agriculture water management, be it at the field scale or at the watershed scale, and uh, be it for the rain-fed conditions or the irrigated conditions. So, uh, we are a multidisciplinary team of scientists, and uh, uh, right from water saving, water conserving technologies to micro irrigation, fertility irrigation, to groundwater augmentation, to catchment scale modeling, to poor quality water management, to wastewater management, and reuse in agriculture, we are also involved in a lot of policy making. Working out how the climate change will impact our water and food security and have done an extensive analysis on especially the national capital region of India uh, so uh, this is all what I need to say about myself and I guess so we'll have a very interactive session uh, uh, later on during this panel discussion Great.
0: Thank you super thank you very much. Let me just say a little bit to the audience about what the uh, how we'll use the the time. I think we're going to go till about nine fifteen. Uh, so I'm gonna. I have a set of questions that I will pose to the panelists, but I also want you all to be thinking about what questions you wish to ask, because I'm going to reserve time toward the end of the session for you to be able to pose your questions to the panelists. I'm also looking at Monica and Julie. I forgot to ask: Are we passing microphones or? <laughs> Okay, great, okay. So we'll have microphones available as well. But be thinking about what questions you wanna ask and and we'll make sure to, to uh, uh, allow some time uh, so that you can pose your questions to the panelists. I'm gonna begin by posing a, a question to both Paul and Aditi. As I said in my opening remarks, the key theme of this panel is how to take research and put it into action. So, uh, Paul, I'll start with you. What are the key elements to effectively designing a participatory research project so that you can really connect the stakeholders, the researchers, the smallholder farmers with new ideas and implementation?
1: So um, participatory uh, research with farmers, maybe not the person that coined the phrase, but the preacher or the prophet of it is Robert Chambers. And he, uh, he wrote uh, or edited a great book called Farmer First, um, but his second book was called, or the, his second book on the topic was called Whose Reality Counts? And uh, it's a brilliant book that really, ex- really puts forward that where you really need to do is start where the farmer is and really understand the context that they're working in, um, which breaks a little bit the assumptions that we have in extension um, where we're bringing research or some solution to people and really recognize that the, the process of analyzing your own problem and coming up with potential solutions is part of the extension method, and it's proven that that's, that's been far more effective. So step one, we'd say, is, is really get in and understand where the farmer is, what problems they're having. And in our work in, in, in Afghanistan, which is where I was previous to, to Central America, and, and now, what we say is, when we're working with farmers, we need to have an early recognizable result. So rather than coming in, introducing something where we really want to change the farming system, what we want to do is understand um, what, what are the, the, the basic problems that they have and how can we help them fix those. From there, we start developing questions together. And that's where the research t- starts taking off. But that's where the farmer is together with us, with the researcher. And the role that we see is, as the NGOs is bridging that between the farmers and the research institutions, creating those relationships, the space, and the time to be able to do something very well. We, we put a very similar question to this to to a colleague, Mark Lundy, that we work very closely with in SEAT um, a couple of years ago when we were talking about what works and what doesn't um, between the coordination between um, our organization and SEAT. And he put, the, he put the answer in a very same, same way. Begin at the beginning. Meaning as the, as the NGOs and as the research institutions, let's really think about the questions, come up with the right questions at the start and design it together, rather than trying to bolt on some sort of research project, um, research question to, to an existing project. And we have been doing that with CIOT, um very well for the last um, five or six years, and that's really made a difference in the terms of, the, of what we do and the way that we're going about our work, and we've seen a lot of results in the field as well.
0: Great, Paul, thank you very much. Aditi, perhaps you'd like to, to provide your perspective.
3: Yes, I think my perspectives are absolutely identical with, with Paul because it just sounds so commonsensical that we start what the farmers actually demand, but common sense, as many of us know, is, is not that common. So we often we often start with, with, with what our expertise is, and then we try to see if farmers need those, but the idea would be to start from the other way around to see that what is it that farmers want and how our research can serve that. To, I have found that in my work in both in India, in Central Asia, and then uh, also uh, I think we as researchers have a huge amount of contribution to make in actually uh, finding out those uh, those niche or those, uh, those uh, things that farmers require. For example, when I started working in West Bengal, that's my home state, uh, there was the impression that there is a huge water scarcity and most people kind of assume that there isn't water but when we started looking at it carefully, we realized that it's not the physical, there isn't a physical scarcity of water, water is, groundwater is available within 30 feet from the ground but what was really stopping farmers from accessing that water was high energy cost. So, so, so if you if you kind of start with the assumption that there isn't water, then the kind of interventions you do are entirely different from if it shows that there is water, but then you don't have the means of accessing that water. Uh, so I, I think we found similar things also happening in in Central Asia in a, in somewhat different contexts when we were doing work in Fargana Valley. Um, so I I think I I'll, I'll leave it at that. So understand what is it the constraints that farmers face. What is it that they are trying to maximize and and help them do that. So that would be
0: my... Thank you very much. And I I want to pick up on that theme. And I think one of the things that can be challenging is to think about how these international or global institutes can then get to real solutions uh, on the ground. So Ravinder, I'd like to ask you about how you see international research and, and implementation institutions, like the one that you work with. Doing a a a good job, or how they can do a better job in connecting research to implementation and and action.
5: Well, we uh, do a lot of capacity building, um, uh, and uh, particularly that for the for the smallholder farmers, and not only for the farmers, uh, for the educators, for the trainers, so so as to enable them to go and extend the research to the rural, rural neighborhoods. And also of the policy makers, so as to enable them to implement those policies and to see to it that uh, that uh, the that the grassroots level worker is benefited of, of those uh, you know um, uh, policies. Now, I'd like to give you uh, highlight various issues how we actually implement those things through an example. Um, we have in our country uh, an area called Mewat. It is a very, very backward region in the country, very vulnerable to the highs and lows of the temperature, basically more of a rain-fed side of uh, agriculture you see there. Uh, there, there is absolutely uh, limited water during the pre- and the post-monsoon seasons. During the monsoon seasons, acute shortage of water also As a result, there is a heavy drawdown of the groundwater in the region, and because of this, that excessive drawdown, the quality of the water is also very poor. And to top it all, the people there, in spite of all this water scarcity, are still practicing flood irrigation, the traditional method of irrigation. So you can yourself imagine the magnitude and the multiplicity of the issues Um, you know, interconnected with the climate concerns in this particular region of ours. What our centre did was that uh, we uh, tried to develop certain adaptation strategies for this particular area, not just the research agendas, but actually developing and implanting them on ground for the uh, smallholder farmers. And these uh, strategies encompassed not only the uh, crop, the water-saving, the water management, and the water-saving interventions, like uh, renovation of the community ponds and renovation of the soil water conservation structures, implementation of the underground pipeline, and drape and sprinkler irrigation system, as conventionally what we normally do. But we went a step ahead to also implant crop and uh, livestock And uh, uh, ICT and socioeconomic socioeconomic interventions for this particular region. And the results were amazingly successful, very immense. Our drought mitigation plan for the year 2012 for this region actually resulted in an increase in water availability by 40 to 56 percent, increase in the yield by 20 to 25 percent, increase in the income by roughly about, if, you had, if I convert it into dollars, about 100 to 200 US dollars per acre, and you know, also increase in the rural health and overall rural livelihood. So that's the kind of, uh, you know, the interventions I see mm-hmm. can really reap the good results. Well, and I especially like
0: that, that that focus on the results, where you know what is happening in terms of increasing water supply, what that does in terms of, of the ag productivity. So thank you very much. Karen, I'm, I'm going to turn to you uh, and uh, ask a question about some work we've done together, in a sense. Uh Uh, You've supported the Ag Water Solutions Project, which was funded in part by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. How and where were stakeholders engaged in the research process in the Ag Water Solutions Project?
4: Well, basically, this Ag Water uh, Management Solution project was very much focused on the processes of engaging uh, mm-hmm. the stakeholders and the, and the decision makers throughout the project. Um, the overall uh, aim of the project was to enhance the access uh, to water management solutions uh, for the smallholder farmers in India, uh, two states of India and uh, four or five uh, con- uh, countries in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. And in these regions, as uh, Aditya already mentioned, uh, many places water is actually available, but uh, the access to the water and the, the associated kind of inputs and, and requirements are not there for the farmers. So that's what was the project uh, was looking at. Um, and uh, I think the project was quite successful in the sense that um, it has been finalized now, and uh, some outcomes have uh, already come out. And uh, some of the policies that were kind of recommended as part of the project have been adopted by uh, some of the governments and some of the ministries. Kind of indicating that, that this has, been, uh, has had impact at the, at the higher level. And the uh, sort of uh, ways to go about uh, reaching these outcomes was to have a very explicit and well-planned uh, engagement pla- uh, process throughout the project all the way from the beginning to the end involving farmers as well as just, uh, sort of decision makers at the higher level. So reaching from the, from the very lower level to the higher level. Um, and uh, having very influential individuals on the project that knew the country setups and the, and the ways that uh, things were working at the higher level, I think was also very important. And then throughout the project, there was kind of a parallel uh, process of, of uh, engagement, uh, stakeholder uh, dialogues, uh, consultation with the, uh, with the, at national and sub-national level. There was also interaction between the regions, so between India and Africa, uh, kind of uh, exemplifying some of the solutions in different regions and exchanging um, lessons learned and so on. So I think those were some of the, the important points of this project.
0: Great. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Aditi, last year you were recognized uh, with the first Norman Borlaug Award for Field Research and Application. And I think most of the audience is probably familiar with the legacy of Norman Borlaug with the Green Revolution. He had a couple of phrases he used to love to to use. Uh, One was, you can't eat potential. Uh, (laughs) Better take it they get, you know, turn that research into action. And another was that uh, you gotta take it to the farmer. And I think this award, uh, uh, which recognizes research in the early stages of their work, who emulate the scientific innovation and dedication demonstrated by Norman Borlaug, I think it, it says a lot about that principle of we, we've gotta take it to the farmer. So perhaps you can tell us briefly about the process of policy influence work uh, that you did in your home state of of West Bengal, which led to this this great recognition, and maybe say a little bit about some of the challenges and what you had to do in terms of policy outreach and what you learned.
3: Yes, uh, uh, yes, uh, I can. I'll do that. And then to to carry on from what Karen said, this work was also funded by the Gates mm-hmm. Foundation, so it was a part of that Ag Water Management Solutions project. Uh, so, uh, so, so the reason this work was Notice was that it was one of those cases where research actually went on to influence policy and, the, and then the policymakers acknowledged that that was the role of research that it played. So, so this work led to changes in groundwater law as well as electricity policies of my home state of West Bengal and uh, uh, and uh, talking of challenges, I, I think there, there were, there were quite, quite a few challenges. This body of work I have been doing for the last almost seven, eight years, but it took a long time for it to actually go to the policy makers. And part of the reason was, while getting easy access to electricity was very much the demand of the farmers, that of the policymakers, and in particular in, in West Bengal, is also the urban intelligentsia and the and the urban elite who have an inordinate say on policy. They believed, for one reason or the other, or otherwise, that we had a huge groundwater crisis. So that was the first stumbling block. I would say changing mindsets, and that is, as we know, takes a lot of time. Uh, so, I would think that as the most important challenge. In the meanwhile, meanwhile, as a researcher, I did what I could, which was, you know, keep publishing my papers in various journals. Then, what happened? Two things happened that made a difference. First, a new government came in in West Bengal after 34 years. So, this uh, there was a change in government after 34 years. So, the new government wanted to do new things. So that was one window of opportunity. And second was through the Ag Water Solution Project, where we have been regularly talking with a whole range of stakeholder. Our research got noticed by the Indian Planning Commission, which is the central like, decision-making body, very influential. And a member of the Planning Commission, Dr. Mihisha, he found the results very interesting. And the Chief Minister of the State had approached him, that like, can you provide me some solutions? So he kind of made this connection and then we went and we presented to the chief minister and like within two two months the laws were changed and that kind of made me realize that you know what kind of power the political decision makers have if they get the information how how easy it is for them to change so so i think uh, so so these were the two two things
0: yeah and and one of the things that, that when you and i were chatting earlier i i i saw your your interest your passion really for how Policy and farm behavior, farmer behavior work yeah. together. And I think that shows through uh, in the, the work you're doing and now the the new work you're doing. Would you like to say a little bit about the the new uh, work you have underway?
3: So as a follow-up, I mean uh, so this was a work I carried out in my in, in EMI. As a follow-up, some of my colleagues are actually, for me, changing groundwater law is not an impact, it is an outcome. The impact would be how does this change actually affect farmers' lives? And as researchers, we are in the process of now measuring that impact. Now that there is a groundwater law change, we are going back to the farmers with questionnaire surveys and seeing whether they have got electricity, if having electricity change their agricultural livelihoods. So, so that is a bit of a follow-up. And, and now I also have a new job which is, uh, which is leading a group of some 2022 scientists who do very good work on climate change in the Hindu Kush Himalayas. So that is somewhere we are trying to link. So, so we do a lot of work on the supply side, as in how much water, what will happen if glaciers melt. What we are also now trying to do is to look at the demand side. How do farmers manage that water in the hill context? So these are the two main bodies of work I'm involved in right now.
0: Great, thank you very much. Thanks. Paul, I want to turn back to you. You uh, mentioned uh, the key elements of how to, to uh, take research into action and really deliver on the participatory approach. I'd like to to drill down a little bit more with your leadership of the Global Water uh, Initiative co- and how you're connecting research and implementation, in particular the
1: action research approach, if you will. Uh, I, I I think what Aditi was saying was was fantastic. It's the there's a lot of information out there, um, knowledge research, and it doesn't sufficiently affect policy in the ways it should, and, that, and then often that's the key, is getting, getting the right policy solution and then things take off. What we've set what we've for the Global Water Initiative for the next five years, the premise is that most of the solutions that are needed are, are known, that they've been well established, there's, there's tremendous experience on the ground, great research by many uh, international and regional and national uh, research institutes but there hasn't been a consensus about these solutions. Is that Many of the institutions, government, non-government, research institutions coming at it from, from different angles, but essentially saying the same thing, but not coming around together and saying, we agree on these as solutions. The knowledge is dispersed, and so the, the, this information isn't having the impact on policy that we need. So the way that we are starting this program is bringing together researchers, policymakers, development specialists around a table, uh, a round table, around um, several different themes, and saying, um, let's answer this question together. Let's look at what we know. And specifically, we're looking at large um, government or non-governmental programs, agriculture programs that have been implemented in the last 5, 10, 15 years, and actually going in and looking and saying what worked and what didn't. Let's talk to the farmers and let's figure out what, they, what technologies they've been adopting and which ones they didn't, and then what, what has been that impact. Our, our theory here is that if we can get these decision makers, the researchers and the development workers together, looking at this together, that they can come up with recommendations that there's some consensus around. And that by having the policymakers in that same analysis and the, and the development of those recommendations, that there's more likely gonna be some policy changes as a result of that process. Um, So that's our theory, and we have about eight months into it, and it's been fantastic. And and many of the people have asked, well, why would people wanna do this? Why would the government wanna go back and look at their old projects? Why would they want somebody to come in and evaluate it? The the, the response has actually been overwhelmingly positive. People wanna know how it went, and very few uh, people have the opportunity to go back and look at your projects, that finished uh, five, 10 years ago and say, what happened? You know, what, what has been the result? And so just by engaging people, offering them that, financing the, the work that goes into that, the response has been great. And, um, and the government has jumped in and has, is taking a lead role in some of the round tables.
0: That's great. Now, Ravinder, we're all tra- chatting together at breakfast. You had a, a point of view as well on this, this notion of knowing the, the solutions, but the challenge of getting to consensus around solutions. And you had a particular thought about the importance of localization or appropriateness for the region. So maybe you can give some examples of your work at the Water Technology Center on research on water technologies and how that's resulted in significant uh, impacts for smallholder farmers in India.
5: Yeah, as I just uh, uh, mentioned very shortly about one of the case studies we did on uh, the Mewat Maw- region and uh, the successes which we had. So they were, like, Im- Im- immense. You, What I meant during the breakfast table is that solutions are already already there. Everybody knows about. They are very trivial, for that matter. The only thing is that to find to plug in the right solution at the right location. We cannot just capture a technology which is fit for large-sized land holdings
2: mm-hmm. and
5: ask that, OK, you can do the same thing uh, with the small-sized land holdings. Uh, Particularly, if I talk about Indian conditions, Indian agriculture is confronted with very many multi-pronged challenges. It's not a single agenda issues. Mm -hmm. You have nutrient deficiency, you have water logging, you have soil salinization, you have erosion, you have poverty, you have lack of resources. So these are all like meshed-up, multi-pronged issues. Answer is not one single. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to really have site specificity in the solutions and, um, um, uh, and really need to touch the base. Like, uh, I, I don't know how to put it across, but the solution, as far as Indian conditions are concerned, they are not simple. You and uh, uh, more to do, until and unless a solution is gelled in the policy, it is not acceptable also. So there is another problem connected with the problems. So... So really, the uh, issue is not not at all simple. So that's what I meant.
0: Yeah. That's correct. <laughs> As we've learned very well in our Gates Foundation work: yeah. the solutions are not simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Karen, I want to come back to you um, and have you share some of your thoughts about how to reconcile some of the optimistic promotion of irrigation with environmental constraints. You know, there's some some de- t- tension, some debate out there. Mm-hmm. So, how do you handle that? What's your perspective?
4: Well, um, this question I think relates very much to, to the context of Sub-Saharan Africa where there's uh, a lot of focus at the moment on increasing uh, agricultural production, irrigation and so on. And that is reflected in the national and regional policies. Um, and uh, when you see these policies, they are very optimistic in terms of what is the potential for upscaling and for increasing agricultural production when we look at the present kind of uh, state of affairs. And uh, so what that that is telling us is that first of all, it's going to take some time to reach sort of these potentials if at all possible. And secondly, there will probably be some consequences uh, associated with that in terms of, for instance, environmental uh, constraints and so on. So I think uh, this might be sort of a second order problem in in Sub-Saharan Africa because at the moment, it's more addressing how do we actually get it going but then in the process, I think it's important to, at the same time, think about how do we also address some of those potential future uh, environmental problems. And of course, the farmers are interested in developing this. Everybody's uh, interested in having uh, short uh, economic benefits from this. But the environment has uh, longer term implications. So that's where we have to reconcile these things. Um, um, and also, uh, yeah, we need to look at the responsibilities and what are the best mitigation options available at the, in the long term. And uh, to come up with some ideas, it's not an easy <laughs> problem again. But I think, first of all, the efficient use of the resources that's where we all are working. And I think that we cannot get around. We have to look at how to use the water, uh, the soil, uh, the land, uh, the agricultural inputs, and so on, in an optimal, optimal manner. And we cannot separate them. We cannot just look at water and forget about the other, because if you need to optimize, you have to optimize across the board. Otherwise, you won't get those yield increases. So I think that's, that's important. And if you get efficient agriculture, you can, you can diminish the environmental impacts, of course. And then also improve the value uh, added uh, in the crop production. I think that's where we need to look at, because farmers are interested in the income. Can they make higher income on a smaller amount of water and a smaller amount of land? That will benefit both the farmers and the environment. And then uh, if we can transfer larger shares of the profits to the farmers, to the local producers, I think they will also be better, um, better off in the long term, and they will be more inclined to take care of the environment. And uh, so we have to look at empowerment, we have to look at the gender issues as, as, as you brought out very quick, very uh, yeah. rightly, the, the, far- the farmers are not only men in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's very much women. So empowering the farmers and getting the knowledge out there for them to understand what's going on, but then also at a higher level, like for groundwater that I'm working on, it's, it's kind of the new frontier. It has big uh, uh, possibilities for increasing uh, livelihoods, but we have to do it carefully and we have it to do it the right way.
0: Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to turn to the audience. There I see a couple of microphones there. Yeah, so there are microphones uh, there, so if you'd please uh, uh, go to the microphones, I'd love to have uh, your questions. I know the panelists would like to hear what's on, on your mind, and if you're here at the front and you can't get back to the microphone, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll repeat the question uh, for everyone. Okay, so while I'm waiting for audience uh, questions, I'm going to pick up on something Karen said and turn to Ravinder. Uh, and as we talked about at breakfast, something that's very important uh, to me or in my own thinking and is that's these issues of gender. Uh, here in the United States, I think oftentimes we don't have as strong an understanding of how central the role of women are, uh, the central role of women in, in agriculture, where in Sub-Saharan Africa, perhaps as much as 70% or more of, of uh, farm labor is, is uh, 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 women. So. I would like to get your thoughts, Ravinder, on the learning about the most effective gender-sensitive participatory approaches. In other words, how do we build that understanding of of gender and what the women farmers need as part of the participatory research projects?
5: Yeah, that's a very good question. See, Indian agriculture is very women-centric. In fact, the whole Indian... Uh, livelihood is very women-centric. Women are at the center, they're supposed to do everything, look after the home, look after the children, also look after the agriculture. And when it is a water-deficient area, def- area, they have to even get water from far away distances. So it's... Uh, our center is very uh, um, uh, proactive in uh, evolving women-centric technologies be it uh, water centric women technologies or be it other rural livelihood connected women's uh, centric technologies uh, say for an example uh, we are into uh, evolving low pressure irrigation systems uh, wherein uh, uh, a poor woman uh, in a water deficient area can uh, easily have a a, a low pressure irrigation system installed at the backyard and practice you know uh, um, uh, agriculture for the rural, for the subsistence kind of an agriculture. Then uh, we also try to promote various other, as I said, socio economic uh, interventions uh, which are women centric, like opening up resource centers uh, uh, such as uh, connected with the tailoring and stitching and upgrading the skills of uh, the uh, women uh, of a rural neighbor- neighborhood in all these you know, um, um, skills, be it handicraft, be it tailoring, stitching, and then connecting them through an NGO to a market, be it a school or be it a a vendor who can potentially help her in uh, 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 rural livelihood and upgradation of her, you know, uh, family. Uh, Then we also uh, try to evolve very, as the quality of the water in the rural neighborhood and also in the uh, urban neighborhood as well is of a very poor quality because of various re- mm-hmm. reasons. So, we also try to evolve certain low cost water treatment decentralized systems mm-hmm. um, which help the woman in uh, getting the clean water right uh, at, a, at a very short distance, which she can use for cooking and various other purposes, and thereby take care uh, of the health of uh, her family. Uh,
0: Great. Yep. Thank you very much. So now I'm going to turn to the microphones. Let me go to the one on, on my left, your right. If you just say your name, your uh, organization, and, and briefly ask your question, please. Sure. My name
6: is Francisco Muñoz Arriola. I am a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. My question is about the, your insight based on your, in the areas you work. The market in, in this world, uh, globalized world, Uh, the market seems like has been successful in driving the farmers' activities. Uh, How water availability, climate variability, climate change would be the right driver for farmers' uh, activities? And also, what do you think is the state of the science and technology uh, with with respect to what the farmers really need where we stand in that part
0: so if i understood the question correctly you'd like to the panelists to get at the 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 issues of uh well you see the market driving farmer behavior but with some of the water and longer term issues what will be the uh approaches to driving farmer behavior perhaps how policy fits in is that that that's
6: that's correct i would say it's a make the question in a different way so far, I think uh, farmers' behavior has been driven by by the market. Mm-hmm. How we enhance uh, this farmers' behavior being driven by climate variability or change or water availability?
0: Okay, great. Uh, who who would like to to chime in? Uh, Paul, go ahead. Didi, this
1: kind of is in your sweet spot as well. So tying this yeah, into the theme. We, we, over, from 2010 to 2012, we worked with CIAT and CIMIT to, to look at the impacts of climate variability on um, maize and beans. And what we came out with were the conclusions and the recommendations from that is that, number one, soil is the major determinant of people's resilience to climate change in, in the context in, in Central America. And then tied to that is human resources. So being um, the, the skills and the knowledge of farmers to be able to make the changes needed, particularly to, to uh, protect and improve their soils. So that's um, tying that, I'm not sure how to tie that to the markets, but, but clearly to, to be able to get your uh, markets, uh, your products to market, you need to be able to be producing and, um, and soils and improving your soils is, is the major factor that we see related to climate variability. Okay, Aditi, and then we'll go to the next question. Yeah, Yeah,
3: so I I wanted to briefly respond that farmers would be driven by market. I mean, they are here for a reason. They're farming to earn their livelihoods. So market would remain a a main driver. But then uh, the question is, what if in, in some parts of the world there are crops that are not really suited to that kind of water regime or soil regime? What do you do in those? I mean... I know in many parts of India their farmers are trapped in unsustainable use and there again I think markets have to play an important role. Farmers do rice in semi-arid area because rice gives them 50% more return than the nearest profitable crop. The idea would then be how to make that next profitable crop more profitable than rice. So there's no, I mean, I I don't see how we can convince farmers that, okay, growing maize is better for you, even though rice fetches you more market price because you are ruining the climate, et cetera, et cetera. I think market has to take a driving seat. That's the way I see it.
0: Right. Thank you very much. We're gonna to go to the microphone on the, the left and, and uh, uh, if you'd say your name and, and uh, organization, briefly answer, ask the question, please. You bet,
7: good morning. My name is uh, Justin Van Wart with uh, Department of Agronomy here at UNL, part of the Global Yield Gap Atlas. Thank you so much, it's so exciting to hear a lot of these uh, technologies being applied, so thank you. Um, you spoke about working with uh, government bodies to evaluate their previous programs. Um, You also spoke about working with farmers to to really improve their technologies. And sometimes the local researchers uh, were using the wrong benchmarks or the wrong technologies um, uh, in in kind of helping farmers develop their systems. My question is this, um, what do you or the organizations or the governments you work with use as as a benchmark? That is a benchmark for water productivity or you mentioned yield potential and closing you know, reaching that potential. What do you use right now for those benchmarks to, uh, for impact assessment and for your programs?
0: All right. Um, you know, both Karen and Ravinder mentioned how you're thinking about measurement and uh, metrics. Would you like to respond?
5: Uh, well, uh, our benchmarks are uh, not the international organizations or any FAO or UNO uh, body. Benchmarks are, um, what is the potential of our land? And how much of that potential we are able to capture? So we just benchmark that. What is the quality of the uh, natural water which is present there? How far we can go to treat it in a very low cost manner? And that is our benchmark. I guess I could answer your question.
0: Karen, did you want to add?
4: Yeah, I don't think I have much to add.
0: Okay. Great, thank you very much. We'll go to uh, the microphone on the right, please.
2: Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. My name is uh, Mohamed Baza. I'm from the Land and Water Division in the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. I will start from uh, some work that we are doing and more or less similar to uh, what Paul has mentioned. Start from a fact that you, Mr. Chairman, mentioned. Uh, even under wonder scarcity conditions, we see that we yield or whatever productivity or whatever benchmark we use, we are still far below the potential. Uh, big issue, fact. And then if we ask people, specialists from different areas, like the people in the panel, very often we, they will say, well, the problem, the issue is with the technology. I have the solution. Others will say, well, it's now knowledge extension. Uh, maybe the policy maybe participation, and so on. But what is the, what is the actual real solution is? Uh, I will start by participation, for instance. We have heard that, really, the, the, the question should be asked to the farmers. Farmers, no. I fully agree. That's very well. But at the same time, we heard that farmers really base the decision on policies, that existing policies within countries. So to what, at, what level, at what level is the solution, really? Maybe it's a combination of both, of Mm -hmm. all uh, these elements, Mm -hmm. uh, technology, knowledge, extension, uh, policy, and so on. But what policy? Is it policy within the country for a given sector, agriculture or water, or is it the agriculture or the economy in general of the country? Or is it beyond the country? Is it world markets, for instance, something that goes beyond? All of these have influence and the solution is really site-specific. So, so May- is,
0: your, is your question about how we ensure that we are bringing together the, what? the bigger picture and, and, and what's possible
2: with the patar- participatory it, research? Yes, I'm getting to that. I think the role okay. of institutes, such as the, the World, Weather for Food Institute, my own organization, FAO, and so on, is really to work out s- solutions that are site-specific, because the the right combination is not one size fits all. The right combination is size specific, country specific and so on. But at the same time, to to see to it that the important elements that are there to get the right solution are there. This is partnership. I think we have worked isolated too long. And we have been giving different signals and probably different answers. If I put myself in the the seat of a decision maker, I, and the hearing so from, I think what we're struggling with here is what, what question do you want to ask? Well, I think our role is really how to enforce integration, how to enforce actual participation, right policies okay. at different levels, okay. but also uh, prioritization of actions, what priorities are needed, and finally, governance and code of conduct at all levels. I think These we have an opportunity for a,
0: a dissertation here. Uh, who, who would like to chime in with some thoughts that might help uh, uh, shape can, the framework? I, I
5: think I can take that. Please. Uh, it's a very valid and a very very good question or, or whatever the thought you mean. Uh, more more of a like a thought process. Uh, what internationally what we are talking about is PPP model, public private partnership model. There's a three P model. But I, what I feel is that it's high time we start talking about 4P model. That is people, public, private partnership. Until now, unless we gel people in, that partnership, in this partnership, certainly, as far as low uh, land holdings are concerned, we cannot find a sustainable solution. I guess you also wanted to say the same thing. But I, I think this, is in a nutshell, yeah. Uh, what is expected the importance of bringing of yeah. bringing the, uh, the, the, the elements together in the, in
0: the whole. In the, yeah. That's very good, and I, and I hope that helps. We're gonna the two folks at the microphone are the last two questions from the audience because I got to be respectful of the time of the conference. So we'll go to the left hand microphone and then the right.
6: Hi, um, my name is Subir Bairagi. I am a PhD student at the Agriculture Economics Department, and I'm from Bangladesh. My question is. Um, in the South Asian countries, there is a huge conflict between policies and politics. As you have been working with different political institutions Africa, India, and Latin Africa, American, would you please share us some uh, experience? How do
0: you deal with this issue? Thank you. So oh, good. Conflict of policy and politics. Aditi. Uh,
3: That's a very interesting question you asked. Just last week, I was at this workshop at Harvard, which was exactly discussing South Asia water conflicts and and the role of politics. And that was attended by a whole number of of bureaucrats and politicians. As a researcher, I got very fresh perspective from there. And what they were saying vis-a-vis, for example, Bangladesh-India water conflict. The the, the main message that came out was, let not the best be the enemy of the good. I mean, a water treaty sharing between Bangladesh and India, for example, would never satisfy all the stakeholders. Nobody would come out of the room negotiating and say, oh, we are 100% happy. We got the best that there could be. But then uh, the idea was pragmatism and to see what are the concessions you can make to each other and what benefits you can draw from each other. So I think in that forum, what I learned from politicians and from people who had actually negotiated treaties was, was to, was to like, kind of reach at compromises. And even if not the first best solution, then the second best solution which serves the purpose for now. So, so that is my take on, on the subject. Thank you,
0: yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll go to the, the question, or sorry, the microphone on the right, please.
6: Good morning, everybody. I'm Camilo Cornejo with Monsanto. have one question. Uh, what do you think is the role of private uh, funded research and technologies, and if you have any examples in your
0: experiences? Thank you. Great. Right. Very good. The role of private research. Um, mm-hmm. Any of the panelists want to chime in? Yeah. Okay. I can say I'll chime in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I'll chime in in part because it's absolutely fundamental to how the Gates Foundation thinks about how we're going to get to, to uh, um, large-scale, sustainable solutions and, and, and impactful solutions. We're big believers that the, the research technology products and services produced by the, product, uh, by the private sector can oftentimes end up Uh, really helping poor people in the world. And part of our mission at the Gates Foundation is to figure out how to take advantage of what goes on in the private sector and get it applied to the the needs of the poor. And so we'll work with pharmaceutical companies, we'll work with agricultural uh, biotech companies, um, you know, sanitation companies who have a private sector interest and figure out how to leverage what they do for poor people. Uh, we think that is absolutely fundamental. So we think it's important to be agnostic about where the research comes from. It can come from the public institutions. It can come from the private sector. Uh, at the end of the day, our view is that what you have to do is you've got to bring the best capabilities to bear on the complex problems that we're trying to solve because they are complex and we need the the best uh, research in the world regardless of where it's available. So that's our philosophy at the... The, the Gates
1: Foundation. Paul, looks like you want to chime in. I, I'm convinced that the, the, the real gap is extension. Yes. And um, and there's a big question, how do you do extension? The, the top-heavy government-funded extension services that existed 15 years ago were not very effective in, in these developing countries. So my question would be back to, to the private sector, Monsanto and, and others. What could be the role of the private sector in strengthening extension services in developing countries? In a sense, bringing the farmers to the level that they're able to use the technologies that are out there.
0: Great. Thank you very much. And I hope the audience will join me in thanking our panelists today. Really. As we said at the very beginning, it's very important to figure out how to put the research into action, so
1: thank you.